I want to help organizations change the way they, they, they work. And I want to do that by bringing them a broader perspective than what they have today, because I've worked with, uh, what, 50 global organizations over the years, and they all have a fairly limited, some less than others, perspective of their terrain. Welcome to Straight Talk, where we cut through the BS and get straight into real conversations with some of the best minds on the planet. I am your host, Af Mahatra. I am blessed to be leading these extraordinary discussions and asking tough questions that then elicit insightful answers, accelerating our awareness of the biggest issues impacting our lives and the future of humanity. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I'm Af Mahatra, your host at Straight Talk. Today, I have a wonderful guest with me, uh, a fantastic author, a great human being, and someone who I'm actually learning a lot from, especially in terms of the gig mindset advantage. And of course, that is what we're going to be discussing today. Uh, Jane McConnell is the author of The Gig Mindset Advantage uh, with, with, the, with the subheading, Why a Bold New Breed of Employee is Your Organization's Secret Weapon in volatile times. I mean, we relate to that to such an extent because we gave birth to Straight Talk during volatile times right at the beginning of COVID. And of course, in the UK where I live, we have some uh, some additional volatile experiences <laughs> going on right now. And yeah. so uh, this volatility is not going anywhere. So Jane, a, very, a warm welcome on the show today. What a pleasure to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing just great. And it's an honor to be on your show. I've watched some of your episodes and uh, I feel like I'm in really good company with the people you've invited and with yourself and all your team people I saw on LinkedIn yesterday. Oh, amazing. So, Thank you so glad much. To be well, here. It, the feelings are absolutely mutual and um, let's get right into it. So when we usually start straight talk, all of our viewers know that we talk about the personal story. So before we jump into the book, of course, it's so important for us to know who you are, uh, why did you write this book, and a little bit about, you know, your personal journey. Uh, so please go ahead, the, you know, the ball's in your court. Okay, well, I started my journey in life on what I call the wrong side of the road. <laughs> and by that, I mean uh, that we lived as children in a house in Iowa. And it was a driveway, a long drive that went up the street, and there were people on one side and people on the other side. We were on the side of the street that was considered the country. The other side was considered the city, which meant that all those kids went to schools in the city, much, much better schools than the ones we went to just on the other side of the street. We went to country schools. And it was interesting when I think back to that, because I think I actually learned a lot. My country school had three rooms. It had nine grades, three grades per room. And you move from one side of the room to the middle of the room, to the edge of the room, and then to the next room. Uh, we had outhouses, no plumbing, and it was really, really country. And what was really cool about that, F, was that we kids were taught to take care of each other. We had to learn to direct the traffic on the road in front of the school. We had to learn to watch the little kids on the playground. And I think we learned a lot of uh, responsibility at a very early age because there were only three teachers, no one else in the school. And so that's a lot of responsibility for them. And they taught us to take part of that responsibility. So I think that's really interesting. 
Uh, I think it has shaped me probably in some way, you know, who knows. Uh, something that definitely shaped me in terms of my, the way I think today is a geology teacher that I had uh, at my first year of university in Arizona uh, because he never gave us a lecture. He never talked to us. We, did, we had a book that we were supposed to read, materials to read, but all he did was stand up and ask questions and he would get an answer that would lead him to another question. And he would go on for an hour, nothing but questions, truly making us think about the answers to these things. And it was, uh, my guess is given the way things are going in the United States today, he would probably be fired by the school board. <laughs> I'm serious, Af. I mean, the educational system is not in great shape in the United States. France, where I live, uh, it's much better. Uh, but I don't think he would, be, he would have been considered a teacher, really, where in fact he was a fantastic teacher. And uh, so that was, those were two experiences I had as a, as a young person, relatively young, that, that seemed important. I left, I got my degree from the university and then came to Paris for one year. And it's been 30 years now and I've never been back. I've gone back to the United States wow. to visit, of course. But I, um, it's fun when I talk to people in France I say, I've been here because I still have an accent. I speak fluent French. I read fluent French. People are amazed at my French, but I have an accent. And so they are just amazed. I'll say to people, you know, 20, 25 years old, I say, I've been in France longer than you have. They start laughing. I tell them the year I came. I said, were you born then? <laughs> and they usually say no. And so I really have a double, well, I have dual nationality, but I think I also benefit a lot from that double personality of the American way of seeing things and the French way of seeing things, which is really, really different. Mm. Uh, I wrote a book called um, L'Avantage Internet pour l'entreprise, which means you can translate that as sort of the, intra, sorry, the internet edge for companies. It was published by one of the big publishers in Paris. They were just about to uh, commission a German book to translate. And suddenly I came along with my proposal. They were really excited. And it was in 1996. And when you write a book in France today, but even back in those days, authors have given, they're held in high esteem. And when that book came out, I was able to go and meet high-level people in many, many of the very big companies uh, in France. And that sort of got me onto my consulting work. And that was sort of the beginning of my professional career. Right. Can I ask you a little bit about, if you wouldn't mind, about your childhood? You talked briefly yes. about your school. So, so you, I guess your parents and your family were in our, Iowa in, in the United yes. States. And yes. do, do you feel that, because I love the cross-cultural nature of your existence, you know, and I relate to it to, to a large degree. Do you feel that the, these 30 years or, you know, three decades plus in a totally different country with a different culture and a different language and therefore, you know, perhaps a different way of thinking that now you've inculcated into your, into your um, American way, way of life, which is of course a unique advantage. Do you think that um, the people that you grew up with, your family members, if people are still around, um, they, you have an ability now to connect with them and relate to them at a different level? Or do you see that sort of bipartisan sort of that divide kicking in, which is what's going on in the world these um, days, you know? Yeah, well, I must say I have a number of cousins that I never knew very well even when I lived in the United States. And I am 
to be honest, completely disconnected from them today because of their beliefs, certain beliefs that they have, uh, primarily religious beliefs, but also political beliefs and sort of lifestyle beliefs. It's a whole different life that I cannot pretend to love because I don't. I, so I, I, we don't communicate very much. Uh, so that's, I mean, it's not a problem for them. I, they're, a big, they're big on that side of the family, so they're doing just fine. But your question is very interesting because it uh, definitely, in that case, created a difference. And I don't want to get into what I think about America today, except to say that I'm very disappointed in the United States. I think there's a lot, there's a lot of good stuff going on, but there's a lot of changes that need to be made. And I think my cousins are sort of swept up in the part of the things that need to be changed. Mm. Um, now, I do know that in France, the reaction the fact that I have this American background has been an incredible advantage professionally. Of course. Uh, because I have this angle that they think is, they always think America's in advance. And so they think, therefore, not only are you one of us, but you also have this edge on the way French people think. And so professionally, that's been an advantage over here. Yeah, yeah. I, and I totally get that because, I mean, I spent some time in France too. And I think having a hybrid background where culturally, linguistically, you have this ability to shape shift and pretty much yeah. like a pendulum, you know, um, keep moving, moving in the direction that you feel you should be moving in actually gets you to a point to some extent um, where you do become a bit of a gig mindsetter. Where, I think that's you know, true. Yeah. You know, you have this because you have the headroom and the agility and the flexibility to, uh, to have the space to, to shape shift, right? You first have to yeah. have that space to shape shift and, and language and culture, diversity of that has a, has a huge role to play. So that's fascinating. So you, um, you decided to write this book, of course, and you published this in 2021, the nearly 200 pages of yeah. very valuable insights around this concept of the gig mindset. And of course, you're saying it's a big advantage. So of course, I'm going to ask you the most obvious question, uh, just for the sake of it. Uh, and it'll be easy for you, of course. What, what is the gig mindset in the context of this book? Uh, because, of course, different people have different views of what a gig means these days and what the, the gig worker stands for. So what is the gig mindset for you? And, and who do you write this book for, actually? Well, I wrote the book for people who are working, people who have a work life, uh, primarily those who are, it started off being primarily for people who are inside companies. Okay. Because the gig mindset, which I made clear as clear as possible at the beginning, is a is a metaphor. It is not. I even stay at the beginning of the book. It is not the gig economy. Yeah. It is a way of seeing things like a freelancer sees things, like a gig, not gig worker the way we imagine the Uber drivers and the pizza deliveries and that sort of thing, but true independent consultants, freelancers have a different mindset, which I've had because I've been freelance practically all of my life. And you know, if I saw that come out um, in some of my big companies, I've, I've worked primarily with very large organizations and I discovered people who were doing things that were different and they would take initiatives without asking their boss. I mean, like hiring me sometimes would not even go to the purchasing department. Um, and they were taking risks to, to accomplish something and I saw that there was this mindset inside organizations. It's turned out that a lot of people who are independent, who are freelancers, find my book helpful. Um, 
partly because I have a couple chapters dedicated to how you can develop yourself that way. Uh, so I'm no longer after it came out in May 2021. That seems like a long time ago, but it's not that far, really. Mm-hmm. And um, I have realized now from people's reactions that it relates and touches a lot of people. Um, it comes from data because I, for 10 years, I did global surveys on the organizational digital workplace. For right. 10 years, a global thing, lots of people around the world who participate, three, 400, 500 companies every year for 10 years. And I suddenly saw the these freelance characteristics, employee uh, autonomy and things like that, liberties emerging on one side of the scale and leadership was down. Leadership was not open and participatory. That's the phrase I used. It was command and control pretty much. And so this gap was building up uh, between people who were trying as individuals to do something and being in a context where it was difficult to achieve Mm -hmm. anything. And so that was my, from a data viewpoint, and it's always nice to have data that backs up when you create something like a gig mindset idea. It's very helpful to have data to back that up. Mm -hmm. And so that was what triggered it. You talk about, I and mean, this is this is great because I'm going to jump back and forth, of course. So sure. you, you talk a lot about volatile times, and I think that's a. I'm going to touch on that particularly because, of course, the concept is so powerful in itself. And those of us who are already gig mindsetters will latch onto this. You know, we're just it's we'll magnetize to it. It's so easy for us to understand. And in fact, you know, when I was reading, I haven't read the full book, but I was reading aspects of the summary and I did my homework. And I was able to absorb it at a rapid pace, at a very, very rapid pace, because I am that person. I mm. was that person in my corporate job. I am that person as an entrepreneur. I'm that person as a philanthropist. I'm that person as a, a creator of, of different things like talk shows and so on and so forth. And yeah. so for me, it's so normal. It's just normal. It's me. However, there are many more of, of the other type who are not so gig in their mindset yeah, and there are yeah. a lot of reasons for it. And we'll come to them in a moment. Tell us a little bit about the context of volatile times. Why, why was, why should we care about that? And how is this accentuating the concept of gig mindset, especially the last few years has been super volatile for all of us. Volatile is important because people have fears and that's one of the things that comes across in my book, which I did not realize until I I got this guy. Do you know Art Kleiner? Yes, of course. Yeah. Brilliant guy. I w- exactly. Mm-hmm. He did me the honor of reading my book. Okay. And he gave me an endorsement of the book, which I have here, but I'm not going to read out loud to you. It's on my website. The main thing he put his finger on more strongly than anybody was the problem today is not a lack of gig mindset. The problem today is fear. People have fear inside organizations. And of course, there's been a lot of research done about that. And um, the volatility that we have today is increasing fear. People are concerned about losing their jobs. Other people in companies are concerned about how do we keep people in our company? We have like this sort of double thing, you know, the so-called quiet quitting and which I don't think a lot of in terms of as a, as a term, but the whole idea of reasons that a lot of people do not want to go back to working like they used to. And it's more than just working at home and working in the office. It's yeah. much deeper than that. And I think the, the, the pandemic made all of us think 
about our lives, made us think about death, made us think about what are we doing with our time? Are we doing really what we want to be doing? Right. And I think a lot of people question the purpose in their professional lives. And I think that's had a big impact on, on companies hiring people and on people on inside companies who are thinking, I've got to keep my job. I've got my kids to feed. I'm in America. I have to have my job to have healthcare and different reasons. And so there's this constant pull of fear, but yet I'm not living my purpose that I want to live in my life. Mm. And, um, I think that's, I think that's one of the reasons that volatility is so important and why the gig mindset, a mindset that lets you watch what's happening inside where you are, whatever your workplace is, watching what's happening outside your workplace, uh, externally, gig mindsetters go across borders, you know, even inside an organization from there's so many internal barriers and borders inside an organization. Right. And then the internal external is a huge one. And that we'll talk about a little bit later, but mm. what I'm working on right now is beyond the internal external borders, but from our company or organizational context to the entire world. And what I'm beginning to call the worldwide workplace and how all of these companies and people, we all are interlinked together in different ways. And I think that is, that's the way things are moving. Yeah, And um, we'll talk about that a little bit later because that brings up my current uh, passion for science fiction. But let, yeah. let's go on first with the gig mindset if you have any. Um, oh, let me just tell you a really cute story. Please. In fact, I say cute, but it touched me. I was invited in 2011 to give the keynote speech to the first in, in Warsaw, to the first communication intranet conference in Poland, which took place in Warsaw. And I gave the keynote speech and I talked in 2011, I was not talking about the gig mindset. I was talking about the digital workplace, how right. enterprise two people need to come out and so on and so on. And there was an older person in the audience at the end who raised his hand and said, do you believe companies should be democracies? And there was a sort of silence in the room. And it was an interesting question because at least a third of the audience had only been living in a democracy for a limited amount of time. Most of their work lives had not been in a democratic country. And so that question really stayed with me for a very long time. Do you want to know what my answer was? Course, <laughs> I, said, I, I said, not democracies, but people must be able inside organizations to express themselves and to influence decisions that are made. I said, in. And in an organization, there have to be people who are responsible. They have to be responsible. You have to be accountable for certain things. And that has to connect with the opinions and the viewpoints of everyone else in the organization. So saying a democracy is a little bit too simple. Mm -hmm. But the spirit is there. But the pure democracy, no, I don't think that would work uh, for an organization. Mm. So let's go. Let me pull that thread for a moment, because now you've yeah. opened that, uh, that, that domain up. So when you think about this concept of a democracy, I'm not saying that's the, the idea, but an ideology of some sort in an organization. Let's let's pick on just for a moment, the the person, the persona of the gig mindsetter, just for a moment. And I'm, I'm in, intrigued to, to try and figure out whether you've done more research on this. So if you think about the typical gig mindsetter, um, A, have you managed to figure out whether there's a certain type of profile 
of pers- before we de- decide to de- define them as a gig mindsetter, uh, do they come from a certain background? Do they come from tough times and therefore they are more creative and adventurous? Do they come from ab- abundance? So they don't have to worry about crabs in the bucket mentality and, you know, they're really cool and relaxed and everything's all, you know, everything is about getting things done and it's very, you know, expansive and so on. Self-actualized to an extent in Maslow's mm-hmm. hierarchy. The point I'm trying to make is, have we figured out, oh, like if I was the CEO of a large company, like a big bank, I'd be pulling you, I would I'd be like, tell me, tell me, have you figured out what I need to look out for um, to, to have more gig workers in my business? I have not found a personality type. Um, in fact, it reminds me of a Nigerian, a real estate developer in Nigeria who was in my research, and he wrote down one of his comments was, you know, work is life and life is work. I am a gig worker, he said to me in, in not very good English, because my life and my work are the same thing. It's the way I am. Right. And I was very struck by that. And I think that one criteria is that gig mindsetters question the status quo. They do not hesitate to raise questions about, is there another way to do it? Could we do things in a better way? And that's probably the one, if I had to choose one thing that was different about gig mindsetters and other people, that would be it. And someone said to me, uh, and I forget what conference I was in, talking about the gig mindset. And, and he said, I'm looking for a job. How can I tell if the companies who are interviewing me will welcome a gig mindsetter? And I said, you'll be able to tell by how they handle your job interview, your recruitment interview. Are they interested in your thoughts and what you your ideas are about what ideas you would have if they hired you yeah. or not? Or are they just telling you about their company? And it's the same thing for a company who wants to hire people. They need to put them in situations. In fact, one of the case studies in my book, uh, Merck does that really well. The medical affairs director, uh, when he's looking at people to hire, he says to them, okay, we're going to create a committee and we're going to evaluate certain things about new drugs. Who do you think should be on that committee? What, not people, but what functions in the company should be included? And he says, the people who come back with just the developers and the researchers, that's who should be included, are not the gig mindsetters that I'm looking for. They need to be saying the communication people, the HR people, the salespeople, every function in the organization should be represented on that committee. So it's sort of a two-way thing. You know, whether you're giving it, whether you're taking a job interview or you're interviewing someone, you need to ask questions at the beginning to find out what kind of perspective they have and the likelihood that they will be able to challenge because that's that's the thing that's really hard to do and most high level managers don't like to be challenged honestly mm. the majority don't do you do you see uh, that's brilliant i mean do you see these gig mindsets becoming ceos of companies is that, is that a realistic um assumption that's a really good question that no one's ever asked me and i would come back to you with a question and say what size company are you thinking of yeah, so I, I let let's go bold first. I'm thinking a large Nasdaq listed. The companies we know of, you named one or two of them. Do you yeah. think someone who has a gig 
mindset, the way you describe it, has the smarts and political savvy and can fit into the culture of the corporate, albeit that culture we think needs to change and climb to the top one day, you know, not tomorrow, but one day become the CEO of a company? The gig mindset CEO has this incredibly difficult challenge to balance between thinking like a gig mindset when you think about a variety of things, the company, sustainability, the earth, and so on, and you have shareholders. If if you're a, a, a company that has shareholders, how can you balance those two things? And um, I think private organizations have a much greater chance of having a gig mindsetter at the top than um, companies that are quoted on NASDAQ, to take your example, mm. for the moment. Are you aware of B corporations? Yes. Yeah, B corporation, uh, they're primarily, I've seen the website, I've looked at the companies on them, they're primarily smaller organizations. Uh, and it appears that Dannon was in the process of going through that. It's one of the big companies that was on the website is going through that. But um, now with that guy gone, I don't know what's going to happen. Mm. There's too much pressure on money. Ah, that's that's one of our mm. problems. We're, we're in a capitalistic system where there's pressure to earn money. And there are ways that we should be earning money uh, that don't depend on all the exploitation and so on and so on. I mean, you know, we're not going to get into capitalism mm. as such. Hmm. But is that an answer to your question? Yeah, it is. I mean, I think it's a good, it's a great perspective. And I, I asked the question because many of the gig mindsetters out there today and in the future who are going to pick up this book in five years time, you know, for argument's sake, regardless of age group, regardless of age group, and you could be yeah. a gig mindsetter at 50 and have the self-awareness and realize, ah, oh, I read Jane's book. Actually, I'm one of them. I had never really figured this out. That's me. Yeah. Or it could yeah. be like a 20 year old, you know, Gen Z who decides that, yeah, you know, actually all of these traits are, um, I've always been this person, even at, 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 uh, at you know, when I was in school, in the playground, yeah. I was a gig mindsetter. I was the guy yeah. who was selling, you know, crisp packets for 10p less, or, <laughs> uh, but I wasn't, you know, awful about it. I was yeah. like, if someone didn't have the money, I'd be like, hey, dude, you can have this, you know, pay me some other time. I was inclusive in my approach. Yeah. And there are people like that. Unfortunately, yeah. I think we've never really supported or recognized or given any form of importance to people who can do what you describe uh, as the traits of a gig a mindsetter. In fact, we've gone the other end. And yeah. I, I keep saying this, you know, last three years I've been doing this, um, this um, whole this experience for me with straight talk has been so, so powerful. I can't think of another word in English, but, you know, powerful, insightful, you know, game changing or whatever it may be, because you know, a hundred different perspectives, a hundred different intellectuals and authors and doers and leaders who actually are saying different things, but we are saying, uh, but with so much consistency and commonality, we're actually yeah. all saying the same things, but we bring yeah. a very different lens to it. But it's what surprises me is that even to this date, the management books that are thrown out, and I'm not going no. to name any institutions, no. but even the old school, you know, the old school um, professors that I read when I was doing my master's or my degree and all that sort of good stuff and leadership training, of course, because, yeah. you know, I did loads of leadership training when I was in the corporate world. A lot of that, the messaging, I mean, even Jim Collins, you know, a great, you know, uh, yeah. the last or whatever. And even Tom Pieces, I used to love Tom Pieces, you know, reimagine what a book, you know, incredible. Like, you know, he had such a creative mind. Uh, a lot of people who came out of consultancies like McKinsey and so on and so forth, they did write some great books, but I think the relevancy of that material 
is 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 no longer there because we are all challenging the system, aren't we? That's right. That's right. We're, That's we're exactly the system. Yeah. And you know what's interesting, Af, what I did my uh, gig mindset research over the specific nine behaviors, yeah. and then I did an age chart. And the older the people were, the more gig mindseted they were. And I was very surprised with that data. I even ran the data twice to make sure I had not made a mistake. Then I thought, of course, young people coming in to organizations or situations, they're not as sure of themselves as the older people. The older people had those traits more. Um, but I think that if, if you're going to really break out of the corporate mold today, uh, it takes a lot of courage. And I think it takes a lot of political skill. It does. You've got to know how to deal with other people. In fact, you could spend your whole life as a CEO or C-level person doing politics and working on bringing your ideas across. And I, I think you need to if you want to bring about change. Yeah, and I and I, it's it's getting it's getting me um, more and more comfortable with this idea that I, I I'd like to you know express so people watching this can feel comfortable about what you've written here and your research, which is you know this concept of aspirations, right? I, I mean, until now, I asked you that question. It was a deliberate question, but who says that the pinnacle or the apex of being in a job is to be the CEO of a franchise? <laughs> yeah. Who says? Who decided that? You know, at the top of the iceberg, and uh, you could quite well and quite easily, uh, you know, be the um, play a role as a catalyst of whatever sort. In fact, you could be a quasi CEO of your own sort in whatever else and whatever oh, yeah. you decide to pursue. But I think these job titles. I mean, this is the other issue with nomenclature in these big companies. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Job titles. I mean, what, what is this nonsense? I mean, you know, yeah. with, they haven't changed at all. You know, you still got this vice president stuff going on. Senior vice, senior vice president. I, I don't understand what senior really means. You know, I have a thing in my book about job titles in the chapter about uh, uh, supporting the, what did I call them? The people who are the, bringing change in the organization to yeah. not use job titles anymore, but have a phrase on your business card that gives an indication of what it is that you do. Right. Another thing I have in the book is a chapter, a section on reverse leadership, where the idea is that it's not the leader at the top who is the real leader. It's often people on the edges of the organization who are in the best position to make certain strategic decisions about the organization because they yeah. see the world as it is, not through this filter that people have at the top of organizations. Yeah. But again, that's going to be a long time coming, I think. Yeah. I also feel, I guess I'm going to ask you a question about culture in a moment and whether you've looked at the variable that is culture and country for, you know, and um, to, try, yeah. to, try and, to try and figure out whether, let's say you go to, you talked about, um, you know, uh, an African country a, mo a moment ago, I think it was, was it Ghana or? Not Nigeria. Um, Nigeria. Yeah. And uh, that, so that's one part of the world, one, one continent. Then you've got Asia and you've got Southeast Asia. So you've got places like India that's one type of culture. And then you've got China, the very different type of um, Asian culture and you have Japan and then you have the West. And, you know, I, I say this, I say this because we we've been talking a lot about this concept in the past episodes around this um, uh, issue. And I guess we're dealing with it, which is split into the three spheres, East, West, and digital, you know, <laughs> like a sandwich. Right. Yeah. And so the divides are getting greater and we're now seeing it in the form of wars and geopolitical issues and trade policies. And, and it goes on and on and on. 
do you feel in your research, it may not be in the book, but generally your sort of, you know, observations, do you think that cultures moving forward over the next, let's say 10 years, 15 years, a decade out, do you think certain cultures and countries are more gig ready? Um, and if so, why? And why I want to throw well, just one small bit I want to throw in. So our, which, which countries do you believe are more gig ready, if at all? But this concept of integrity I'd like to bring in because I feel like a gig mindsetter isn't just about I'm so resourceful and I'm so sharp and clever, I've got mm. great clock speeds, uh, but screw you and screw you and screw you in the process. I think integrity and trust and ethics is, 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 has to be a core of this gig oh, yeah. mindset or attitude. Because I do know, I know, I know gig mindsetters who don't have any of that. I know That's gig mindsetters. So oh, not, not the way you define yeah. it, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I understand that. And uh, that's, in fact, that's part of what I, when I talk about uh, deviance and positive deviance in that right. people who want to go, I'm talking about people in an organization now who want to go out and go to conferences, meet people outside network externally and management thinks, oh, you're wasting your time. You're focused on yourself. You want to develop your own skills. That is deviance. They don't see the positive side of that deviance and that they're going to bring that information and knowledge back inside the organization. And so um, what you talk about, I, I agree completely with what you said about integrity and uh, a sense of uh, a value beyond yourself. I think that's very important. Mm -hmm. In terms of countries that are more yeah. gig mindset ready, I haven't done anything um, specific about that. I've had an interesting experience one year in my research, uh, this was about the digital uh, uh, organization, not just the gig mindset, but okay. with a person I met who wanted to spread it in Japan and got like 20 or 30 companies to, to respond to my survey. And I gave them a special report for them. And I went following year, I got back to, she said, no, nobody wants to do it again. And I found that very interesting. Uh, something else I find interesting is Scandinavian countries. I'm thinking in particular Denmark. I've been to Denmark, Norway, and Sweden because I've had a lot of clients there. And the first time I went and worked in those countries, I worked with Nokia when they were really, really big. And right. I worked with other companies. The thing I noticed, first of all, Alf, is really interesting. We had meetings. Remember, I come from a French work culture now. And people interrupt each other all the time and no one's offended. That's just the way conversations happen. And we were having this meeting and I, I forget, I think it was Nokia, maybe UPM, another big uh, Finnish company. And I suddenly realized this meeting pace is pretty slow. And I noticed nobody would speak until the other person had finished. And it was uh, comfortable. They were all listening to each other. And I found that for me, it was a big change from the way things were in France. And um, I think that, and I've communicated with people from these countries quite a lot. I have a bold new breed, a gig mindset or Slack group where we, we talk about stuff. And there's a woman in there from a, a Danish company. She tells us stories that couldn't begin to happen in other countries that are also represented in that group. So I think the Scandinavian countries have an edge there. Well, at least for the moment, I think politics are changing a little bit from what I've seen in Sweden, but uh, uh, I think they have an edge there. Uh, I also did a specific gig mindset survey for India, which I had mentioned to you before. Mm -hmm. We had about 40, 50 companies in India who participated in it, and I traced their gig mindset profile and so on and so on compared to the global group. 
and they were high on some things, low on other things. Um, it was quite a mixed bag. And uh, so I don't have a strong answer to your question. I don't think national culture is as important as we think it is. I think the culture that's important, I always talk about organizational culture. Right. Because the way an organization works, I remember going to the Nokia headquarters in Paris for a job or a thing they asked me to do. I couldn't believe it. I, I walked in the door and I felt like I was back in Helsinki. The way people talk, the way things look, the way the meeting happened. And these were French people. And there was just this organizational culture that was not at all typically French. Mm. And so I think organizational culture is a, is a strong factor. Got it. And so um, let's move on to another another side of this, which is very, very interesting, which is um, um, incentives, incentivization, right? So let's stick with the corporation for a moment, because I know that's an area of study for you and, and for me. So when you think about transformational changes in a big company, of course, there's so many layers of that. You could start in every function and have some form of major transformation. When you think about the, the gig mindset type person, right? Regardless of job title, regardless of whether they have a huge remit and responsibility and, you know, people managers or leaders or whoever they may be. Do you find that, uh, do you believe that the way gig mindsets, and I guess other people in the company as well, I mean, you have to have everyone, right? You can't just have everyone who's a clone. I mean, it's, there's, there's no diversity there either. God, I don't know what would happen if we were all just gig mindsets in just one organization. Not sure. <laughs> Never done it, so I don't know, actually. And uh, that's a nice experiment. Do you think the incentive structures, how people get paid and how they get compensated, tangible or intangible, also need to be re-examined? And if so, how? And what has your research you know, taught you? There, it's a question of getting away from individual um, incentives and making incentives be more team-based. And... Uh, having the whole process of evaluating a person's work be a cooperative act that happens all year long, not with the official manager, but with people around the person and making it a whole, it's a process. It becomes the natural way of working. Right. And, um, but you're right. It's a big problem. Very big problem. People obviously want to get a raise. They want to get a promotion. Uh, in terms of getting promotions, we're back in a hierarchical mindset. Um, and um, someone brought up, I think someone in Australia talked to me about the fact that gig mindsetters could not move up. Maybe this touches on your question a little bit. She said they can't move up in organizations uh, because, how did she express it? They are, I can't remember her term now. I, I wrote about it in the book and now I can't remember it. But the idea is a gig mindset person moves around the organization from almost from challenge to challenge. Right. And yeah. therefore yeah. does not become part of a upward movement and does not build a supporting team under her or him uh, because they are dealing with issues, dealing with issues. Mm -hmm. And therefore much less likely to be recognized. She said in downturn times, it's dangerous for gig mindsetters. You can easily get uh, removed if they need to reduce headcount because they simply don't know what you're doing. And uh, so that gets down a little bit to the idea of incentives. And, um, and I think she had a really, really good point uh, mm. about that. 
Mm. What's fascinating is in the world today, uh, where venture capital has increased the um, concentration of, in the old days, you know, just a few startups, technology companies, then becoming multi-billion-dollar organizations. I, you know, the old Microsofts or the old uh, Apples, or even, you know, in more recent times, mm. Facebook was part of a, a more concentrated set of. Yeah startups now of course that has been democratized and there are startups all over the world and ecosystem after ecosystem after ecosystem that's a very positive thing given that i'm from that background too but i'm a convert you know a corporate turned entrepreneur yeah. and um a lot of the entrepreneurs i mean this is a broad brush generalization i'm not saying this is you know i don't have scientific evidence to back it up yet but i can tell you given that i am hang around with other founders and i have a whole business that studies hundreds of thousands of startups all over the world the general makeup of a founder and some of the people they end up hiring at a certain stage or up to a certain stage of growth, uh, which is, I would define it as in the startup world, we call it series A rounds where you, uh, you know, where you raise $10 million, for example, up to 10 million and you're scaling and you're expanding and you're still like a family and you're agile and you're high-fiving and it's like 20 people, 40, 50, I think till about 100, 150 people in the Western world. In the Eastern world, it's different because people, um, you know, 100 people in the UK or US is equivalent to 1,000 people in India, right? Mm -hmm. That's how it kind yeah. of tends to work because yeah. it's cheaper and actually productivity-wise, you need many more people to do the same job in a developing market yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. it's just the way it is because it's hierarchical and it's command control still to a large extent yes i find that this the advent of the startup economy has has given a home for gig mindsetters it's like they feel it's their comfortable place they're like yeah i'll get a job in the next startup they don't even think about a job with a big bank or a corporate brand they really don't and in fact when we when we chat together with my other gig mindsetters or founders and we're all sort of chatting about life and good times and bad times it's almost like the uh, signing a contract with the devil. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, times yeah. are tough. Oh, you know, I, I don't know, business is not doing so well. So what do you think? I don't know what, you know, family needs to bring in some money. It's like the worst case scenario. And it's like, what, yeah. you've got to go and get a job? And it's, it's not because you're going to go and get a job with another startup. You could act, actually, you'd say, wow, that could be super exciting. Because, you know, another like for like exchange there. But when you think of big companies, because they end up paying a lot of money and, and so on, you need some comforts. It is almost like, okay. I call that going slave. Yeah, I'm going and slave. I, yeah, I have yeah. Some, some freelance friends I know who had to go slave. I tease them about it. And others who tell me about, oh, I just quit my job and I'm starting my new business. I say, ah, you've gone free. You've joined the other side now. Yeah. And I, I, it's like two sides. And that's not an exaggeration. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, it is, it is, it is really, I don't really know what to do with it because I have the same mindset now and that's fine. You know, life's great, but it is, it is a worrying thing because I also, I'm not a fan of fear and actually what I'm creating to some extent, let's, let's look at it another way is a sense of fear going into the big corporate again. And I'm not saying I should be uh -huh. you know, devoid of fear, but actually let's be honest. I am fearful of going into an environment that is not right for me. Now, that's because I'm self-aware. Because you don't think, and, and it also means, and I don't want to sound negative, but it means also that you don't believe in your own capacity to change that. Yeah. Perhaps. And I talk about that in my book. I talk about self-efficacy, you know, Banduras. I don't know if you're familiar with his yes. theories. Yes. Yeah. And he defines self-efficacy that I won't, I won't do here, but very simply, you know, that you 
believe in yourself and your ability, not just in yourself, but your ability to bring change around you. He a very powerful sort of three-point statement he has made. And um, so maybe the fear you have is that you cannot change that context. It may be a very justified mm. fear in that you can't change it. Uh, in which case, remember the three paths I have in my book? People who are advocates of the gig mindset way of working, and they're happy because they've got connections with top management. They're bringing about changes. Then you have the people who have to simply resign to that fact, yet compromise. That's what I call them right. because right. they need the money. Yeah. And then you have the people who get out, they exit. So those sort of three paths uh, are important choices, very important choices. Yeah. You know, when I started... And when I started talking about the gig mindset in 2018, uh, in a conference, I did one in Berlin and one in London and one in Paris the same year. And every time I got a reaction from the audience that I've never had in 20 years of talking to audiences, people came up to me at the end, stood in line to talk to me saying, you are the first person to understand me. Now I understand why I have the problems I have. And wow. on and on and on. I had touched the hearts and souls of a lot of people in those three conferences that was all in 2018, that for me was this incredible booster. It's like a booster shot. And I yeah. realized I, I have something here and yeah. I can help people bring about change. Yeah, yeah. And just I to do a little, a quick little advertisement for myself, if you don't mind, is I'm starting a, an initiative that I'm calling Gig Mindset Circles. It's not going yet. I'm just working on the materials for it where it's going to be, for facilitators who want to bring more of the gig mindset into their work cultures in a small organization or a large organization. They're going to go through a series of steps and questions and discussions. And it's for facilitators to help other people in the organization through that circle methodology. You meet once a week or once a month or whatever. You talk, you exchange ideas, and you, you build up some energy uh, within that space because people cannot do it on their own. And so my dream is to have like hundreds of these gig mindset circles around the world. We'll see. We'll talk again in a couple of years and we'll oh, see yeah, if it works. Course. Well, see you have all works. of, you have absolutely without question, you have all of our support from straight talk because, you know, we are about trying to create this level of change and it's not easy to create the change, but you can, if you hang out with the right people, now, people <laughs> make change That's happen. That's right. And that's so, right. yeah, you have our full support and we'll promote that whenever it's... Uh, oh, you know, that's fantastic. I think yeah. you've got a good reach. You've got a good broad reach. That would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So that's great. Okay, so we, and time runs, you know, when we do this, time just goes like this. We've got eight yeah. minutes left. And uh, there are a couple of more things I just wanted to touch on. So one was, you know, to do with the future, all right? Yes. So the, fu the future is, uh, is whatever it is going to be. So we're not going to either try and predict or pontificate on what it may or may not right. be. When you think about your life and the incredible rich experience that you have had so far, and therefore you've written books, you've lived in different countries, you have different languages, hybrid way of thinking, almost ambidextrous existence that you have, you're, gig, you're a gig mindsetter, right? Mm -hmm. So what is, the, um, what is your next decade? What would you like your next decade to look like? I'm not saying, well, I'm going to do this. I'm gonna, like, so if you had a bit of a magic wand moment and I empowered you with this you talk about the secret, secret weapon uh, in, oh, in, in, yeah. in, in this context. But so what if I gave you a secret weapon, whatever it was, how would you define and shape your next 10 years? What do you want to do? You mean me personally? Yeah, you just you. This is all about what, you. What do I want to do? I want to help 
organizations change the way they, they, they work. And I want to do that by bringing them a broader perspective than what they have today, because I've worked with, uh, what, 50 global organizations over the years, and they all have a fairly limited, some less than others, perspective of their terrain, where they should be working. And that's why when we talked at the beginning about science fiction, that's why I am studying science fiction, and we need to have a session just on that. We don't have time today, uh, yeah. but I have a number of examples here I'd like to share with you in another episode. Yeah. Um, because science fiction looks at even science fiction looks at 10 years down the line. There are some very good works that are just 10 years down the line, and of course, much further along. But they help us, especially short stories. They help us envisage things that we couldn't imagine in the world we live in today. And I want to be the, I don't know how to say the, the trigger or the, the uh, instigator of people changing the way they see their lives, their work lives, primarily. Mm. Um, maybe that doesn't sound very modest. Maybe I don't know how that sounds, but I don't, I'm not into this changing the leadership and organization type mode. A lot of people think you start at the top and you bring about change. Right. A lot of books come out about that. Mm -hmm. I think that they're, they're fine, but I don't, personally, I don't believe that's the way change really happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I would like to, I want to bring life to these, what I call these, I hate to use this word because it's a hierarchical word, but the lower levels <laughs> of organizations that are, that are critical for this survival of organizations. You know, in the I, I had an article in the Harvard Business Review at the beginning of the year. They, the title that they gave it was something about how gig mindsetters can help organizations thrive or something right. like that. Right. Right. And I would have said, but I mean, as a writer, you can't choose your headline in mm. the Harvard Business Review. They choose it. I would have said how gig mindsetters can help your organization survive. I really do believe it's a survival question. Yeah, it's a great and question. So, so that's what I want to uh, put my energy into. Yeah, beautiful. Well, you have all of our support. And yes, you're right. Uh, you know, we science fiction is such a powerful medium and it's an important medium for us right now because of the uncertainty and volatility around everything, frankly, yeah. in this yeah. age that we're living in. I, I must say, though, there is one major upside, I feel, when I talk to people like you and various others, which is, um, and of course, let's just talk about books for a second, because we, we interview authors. The, the, the idea that, um, and the, the, the fact that, should I say, that the new generation of authors or past generations of authors mm -hmm. who are writing new books, whoever it may be, and the kind of books that we see out there, the keyword searches, looking at Amazon, looking at Get Abstract, looking at, you name, you name it, I have to say that it feels better. You feel more hopeful. You feel like there's a different narrative that oh, yeah. intellectuals and authors and researchers are wishing, wishing and willing to put, put out there. And it is more courageous writing than even the writing five, seven, 10 years ago. And I spend oh, yeah. my life analyzing dates of books and when published, what was published, when, why, how. And I've mm -hmm. learned a lot about uh, when topics were researched and when the, the books were released. And of course, there's a, it's almost, you could split it into decades and say in that decade, 
we wrote a lot about CEO excellence and yeah. CEO leadership and ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And in this generation, we are writing about mindset, anxiety, neuropsychology, depression, new ways of working, conscious capitalism, the climate. That is beautiful because it, we're at the cusp of transformation. And science fiction has already, some brilliant minds, of course, who conjure that stuff up, have already envisioned a world that we can watch on TV or read books about where yeah. you're like, wow. It's amazing. Um, it's, it's amazing. So it's, it's, not, it's not just recent ones. A couple of my reference books come from yeah. 1948, one and the other 1984. Right, and there are some very old books that have visions of, uh, for in one case, the earth was destroyed. I mean, the life was destroyed. People had to rebuild it and how they rebuilt it and what they did. It's absolutely fascinating and has a lot of insights for us today. And yeah. I have a whole section here that we can talk about another time about how we need to listen to young people. And I recently discovered Bella Lack and her book, uh, The Children of the Anthropocene. And okay. uh, sorry, Anthrop Anthropocene. Yeah. Anthropocene. So I have trouble with that word. It's not one of my natural words. Yeah. And she says, we are addicted to stories. They're the way we're going to save our civilization. And that's, that's, that's true because a story puts an idea in your mind. And that's one of the things that I want to do in my next book through my examination of science fiction and other, other sources is put stories in people's minds, people who have the ability to change organizations. Yeah, I, I believe it can happen. I just don't think it's it's not going to be in 10 years. Yeah, but, yeah. I, hear, I hear you and I'm with you. And I think we're together on the journey to, to try and make a difference somehow in our own unique ways. Yes. Uh, we've come to the end of the show, but what a fantastic right. conversation. It feels like I can sit down and we can chat for hours. About loads <laughs> of things. We're just talking about the book, but there's so much more we need to be discussing. Oh, yeah. uh, before we go, however, I just wanted to request and ask you, uh, for some input, how was the experience for you with us today with Straight Talk? Give us your, your feedback, share your experience. That would be really very valuable for us. Uh, my experience is in two parts. The first is when we had our get to know each other last week. And interestingly enough, when you jumped in on the science fiction idea and sort of did a LinkedIn post that sounded like that would be a key thing we would talk about. In fact, we haven't, but we will. Absolutely. Yeah. But Next because time. you did that, I started moving faster on my own work in science fiction. So your reaction to things I had said compelled me to move faster in what I was doing. And so that was what happened last week for me. <laughs> Every week is different. And today, the interesting thing is that the conversation we're having is not at all planned. It's not scripted, it's not planned. I mean, you've thought about it and I've thought about it. And I think it's uh, extremely valuable for me as a, as a, I would say not just an author, but as a, a thinker and a, and I don't know what to call myself, uh, whatever I am, um, to talk with people like you. It makes a big difference to be challenged, to be asked questions. And I think uh, I would encourage anybody that you want to put on your show to accept. In fact, as I told you, there's a guy I'm going to try to get for you. I won't Please. mention his name now, uh, but I haven't forgotten that. Thank you so much. It's, I know, thank you very much for having me. 
It's an honor. It's a real honor. And uh, the, the, you know, the gift is ours really because, uh, and selfishly, you know, I'm able to, to take all of the, the wisdom and the knowledge that people like you have and, and somewhere it goes there. Maybe I'll have to have some search logic at some point <laughs> when, when, when Elon Musk launches the neural link, I'll put it right at the back yeah, of my head. That, um, you'll be okay. Yeah, but it was uh, it was a really fantastic one hour with you. Thank you so much. I just want to tell the audience that, um, you know, this is Straight Talk, of course. If you uh, love what you hear and it's a value, I have to point down and say subscribe on, uh-huh. on that, you know, press that red button on YouTube. Yes. And also click the notification button. I think it's up there somewhere. It's a bell. So uh-huh. you get alerts of uh, the next episode because we've got so many coming down the pipe. So with that in mind, uh, thank you so much, Jane. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. The Gig Mindset Advantage, uh, it was released in 2021. Go out there, buy the book and stay in touch with uh, Jane. So where can we go find you? How do people connect with you after the show? Uh, The best way to connect with me is through my website, which is netjmc.com. And my email is jane at netjmc.com. Great. If you just do Jane McConnell gig mindset, you'll find me on the internet. You can connect with me that way or Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever. Not so. Got it. Understood. Okay, great. It's been a real pleasure, Jane. Thank you so much. Look after yourself and we'll catch up with you um, on the next show.